Okay, let's, um, let's do our final talk of the, the weekend. The title of this one is Resurrection Mission. Uh, once again, following on from the four chapters in that book that me and Matt have been reading. And we'd still recommend that everybody grabs a copy if you want to um, delve into more of what we've been talking about this weekend. Okay, um, think about the last time you tried to explain the gospel to someone. What things did you think were most important to share? Perhaps it was that there's a God who created us, that there's a problem between us and God called sin, that God himself came down in the person of his son to rescue us, and that this son died in our place for our sins. But how often have you included something about the resurrection in the gospel message that you tried to share? Where does it even fit in? Does it make my message less believable? If you're something like me, the resurrection can often be an afterthought if I remember to mention it at all. What's striking though is, as we've seen, for the earliest believers, it was central to the message that they shared. And as we've seen this weekend as well, without the resurrection, we have no message. There's no guarantee of forgiveness of sins, no power to be transformed, and no hope of eternal life. Can you see that the resurrection and the gospel are inseparably linked? That means that when we share the gospel, mention of the resurrection should be flowing freely with the words that we proclaim. So this morning we're going to talk about how the truth of the resurrection should move us to mission, to letting the world know that Jesus is alive and reigning and that he saves. We're going to look at two ways it moves us. One is by giving us confidence in who Jesus is, and two is by giving us immeasurably good news to share. And if you get a sense of deja vu in this talk, don't worry, it's not just you. Um, some of the things we're going to look at pick up on the rest of the talks from this weekend. Um, but my prayer is that this only serves us to cement these truths and it helps us recap all that we've looked at as we go out from here to our regular lives. And also, side note, um, in each of those two points, I've managed to squeeze in three sub points. So getting a lot of bang for your buck here. Um, <laughs> Okay, let's look at our first point. So, the resurrection moves us to mission by giving us confidence in who Jesus is. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks his disciples this question in Matthew 16, verse 15. Peter, who's with him, replies, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In his book, Knowing Christ, Mark Jones refers to no other question being so hotly debated completely or partially misunderstood, ignored to one's peril, or answered correctly to one's gain. Who we say Jesus is, is of utmost importance. And it's not just important to the believer. What our friends, colleagues, and family think of Jesus is radically important too. So our first sub-point below that is confidence for the early believers. As we heard in our first session on Friday night, the resurrection assures us of who Jesus is, that he's God, King and Saviour. And it was that brand new confidence in the resurrection, along with the coming of the Holy Spirit, that completely transformed the witness of the apostles at the beginning of the book of Acts. Take Peter as a prime example. 
Just a moment ago, we looked at his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But roll forward to Jesus' arrest prior to his crucifixion, and Peter doesn't seem too sure anymore. In fact, he's prepared to go so far as to deny that he even knows Jesus. That's a pretty big shift in perspective. So, it should surprise us that as soon as Acts chapter 2, which is the book that deals with the events immediately after the Gospels, Peter is now getting up with boldness to proclaim Jesus as Lord. What's changed during this time? Well, shortly after denying Jesus, three days after, we see Peter running to the empty tomb to verify whether or not Jesus was there and marveling at what he finds. Then Jesus appears to Peter and he is able to see and touch the wounds on Jesus's hands and feet. If Peter wasn't sure before, he's now fully convinced that Jesus has not only proved himself as alive, but as Lord. The resurrection has fully cemented Peter's view of Jesus, and he clearly believes that his hearers should be convinced by the evidence also. Later, in Acts chapter 4, we see Peter and John put in jail for their conviction on the resurrection. This is because the religious leaders of the day were, and this is quoting from the Bible, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Once again, in chapter 17 of Acts, we see Paul now being mocked publicly for his belief in the resurrection. It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The hostility towards Paul and his preaching on the resurrection eventually culminates in a plot to kill him in chapter 23. So these apostles were willing to suffer jail, beatings, mockery, and even death, all so that the resurrection message would be heard. And none of this boldness makes sense until you factor in the confidence that they had. As we heard at the end of our projected campfire session last night, in Romans 8, 31 to 34, we read this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and it is also interceding for us. You see why Paul had confidence in these things? because he knew that Christ, raised to the right hand of God, was indeed interceding on his behalf. Point 1b, this should give us great confidence too. The disciples wouldn't have been willing to risk all of this on a lie they had created. And we can even be confident that they weren't just easily convinced either. Sometimes, today, in the 21st century, we try and shrug off the resurrection as something that superstitious first century people readily believed to be a miracle. But even in their culture, someone being raised from the dead was totally abnormal. In his book on the resurrection, N.T. Wright conducts a thorough survey of all the Greco-Roman literature in the first century and finds that the idea of resurrection is always and everywhere presumed as an impossibility. We can see this kind of way of thinking in the recorded reactions of the disciples in the Gospels. 
despite being told countless times it would happen by Jesus, none of them were expecting it. We get a good grasp of the level of belief people had for something like this happening in Thomas's reaction. He needed to see it to believe it. And just as it was true for Paul that Christ in heaven was interceding on his behalf, it's true for us also. It's helpful to remember that because Jesus is alive, he's somewhere right now. Author Adrian Warnock writes, A dead hero in the grave is no help to us, but a risen saviour in heaven gives us great confidence. Back to Peter's emboldened sermon during Acts 2. In it, he proclaims, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now I want us to focus on that concept of the right hand of God. For Paul's audience, the right hand of God was a symbol of God's power and strength. Fixing his heart on God's right hand in Psalm 118, David writes this, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Okay, and just want to go in a couple side notes here on how also we can be encouraged to share about the resurrection. I just love how the Bible records the ministry of these early apostles. We brought up earlier Acts 17, that passage where Paul is mocked for his belief in the resurrection. Here's what it said again. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered or mocked. But hear the next line. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is a great encouragement. Yes, whenever we share the gospel, we can expect some to mock and sneer, but we can also expect some to want to hear more and be led to belief in Jesus Christ. Another reinsurance comes from Acts 4, which we also mentioned, the passage where they're thrown in jail. In verse 13, we read this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It's again a reminder that the confidence of Peter and John wasn't in their public speaking, their ability to captivate an audience with grand words or lenience on their own strength. They had courage because they knew who Jesus was and where he was. It's good news for us that we don't need to be an incredible charismatic speaker or have a degree in theology. We only need to be bold and faithful to the message of Christ raised from the dead and people will be interested. Which leads us to our third sub-point, confidence for others. Even our non-believing friends and family can take confidence in the resurrection. How often have we heard something along the lines of this from the people we love? Hey, I'm glad that faith thing works for you, but please keep it to yourself. 
Don't try and force me to believe it too. We live in a society where no one can claim to have the absolute truth, no one religion can be more right than others, and faith is something to be exercised personally and not shared. To make the claim that God is real and that you know what he's like, well, surely that's intolerant of other beliefs, isn't it? But that's exactly what we are saying when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, these are current, real concerns from people we interact with every day, and there are ways that we can be sensitive to where people are coming from. This can be as simple as asking questions before we give answers and listening as much as we can before speaking. When we know why our friends and family may be intolerant to hearing about Jesus, it helps us shape the way that we speak about them to him, about him to them. But fundamentally, we know that we cannot be silent about the gospel. So we must tell people in a way that gives them confidence in who Jesus is, that this isn't just another moral code to obey or origin story for the universe among many. The truth is that everyone is exclusive about what they believe. The idea that there is no one true faith or that no one can truly know what God is like is an exclusive belief in itself. And by and large, it's an easy idea to accept because our thinking of God is often so abstract and distant. If we cannot see God, how can we prove what he or she or it is like? The resurrection turns that way of thinking on its head. The resurrection concerns human history, a unique moment in time and space, documented and recorded, not something beyond our grasp or understanding. Because Jesus came down to earth, ate and slept, laughed and cried, because he was written about both in four gospel accounts compiled of eyewitness reports and in documents created by Roman officials and Jewish historians, and because he left an unforgeable mark of his identity in his death and resurrection, we can share with confidence that we know what God is like. John 17 verse 3 says this on the importance knowing who Jesus is. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We aren't trying to change people's beliefs to ours because we think it would be best if everyone just thought the same way we did, or that it would just be nice for them. We are sharing because we want to show them the realities of who we know Jesus to be. So let's ask our friends, who do you think Jesus is? And pray that the Spirit would open their hearts and lead us in conversations with much fruit. There could be no more important question. Okay, let's move on to our second point. The resurrection moves us to mission by giving us immeasurably good news to share. As we've been looking at all weekend in our previous sessions, the good news of the resurrection for the believer is assurance, transformation, and hope. But through mission, all of these incredible truths are on offer for those who don't yet know Jesus. So not only should we be encouraged by them, but we can also be motivated to share them with the people God has placed on our hearts. But before we address those three topics, I want us to address what can often seem like the bad news of our message, 
The small print we often don't want people to read. Maybe it's even a contributing factor to why the resurrection can feature less in our gospel than other elements. But the Bible tells us that because Jesus has been raised and now is living and reigning, one day he will return to judge the earth. To most of us, the, uh, the notion of divine judgment is repellent. It's the skeleton in the closet of, for our faith and the one thing we often don't want to have to bring up when we share the gospel. But we need to have our view of judgment reshaped. In Psalm 98, creation itself rejoices at the Lord's judgment. We read, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, this morning, we're definitely not where nature's at. All of us aren't here clapping our hands and singing for joy at the prospect of God's judgment. So we must be missing something. Sam Albury in his book Lifted, which Matt and I are totally indebted to, helpfully gives us a new perspective on judgment. He writes this, and I wish I put it up, but I didn't. The judgment of God is not a contradiction of his love, but one of the expressions of it. Because we matter to him, he will demand an account of our lives and respond accordingly. This is a good thing. It shows he cares deeply about us and what happens in his world. For God not to judge us and for our lives not to be held accountable would mean that ultimately we didn't matter to him. So the fact that one day he will judge the world is actually a good thing. It means we have value and purpose. It means wrongdoing will not go unpunished. And since God knows all things, fairness and equity are guaranteed. There will be no injustice when this God makes his judgment. Now, that's all well and good, but maybe we would be more into God's judgment if we could just see the effect of it in the here and now. It seems like so much injustice is occurring all the time and people just seem to get away with it. The answer is that God has appointed a time for this to happen. Ultimate judgment comes at the end of our lives. This means death is not the escape from judgment. Acts 17.31 tells us that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God's assurance of judgment may seem like a bittersweet pill. It's amazing to know that all the wrongs committed in the history of humanity won't go unpunished, but it's terrifying to think of all the ways we have contributed to that, either in our neglect to do the right thing or our ability to often do the wrong thing. Even without God's law to live up to, we've all fallen short of our own internal standards. This brings us on to point 2a, which is that our message gives us assurance of right relationship with God. This is why the resurrection is such good news. Not only will all wrongdoing be dealt with by a perfect righteous judge, but that same perfect righteous judge loves us and offers a way for our greatest predicament to be solved. Think of how this truth 
could be applied to some of the everyday conversations we have with those around us. Perhaps they've told you about guilt or shame in their life. Maybe they long for a way to shake off the weight of their past. For many of our friends, however, I'm not sure that guilt is even on their radar. Maybe it's more likely that they've told you about a struggle for meaning or satisfaction in their life. Maybe it's relation and belonging that they long for. All of these desires can be fulfilled in right relationship with God. Jesus said that he had come so that they may have life and have it to the full. And that's why it's so incredible that the resurrection guarantees that right relationship. You see, we don't just hold out the promise of a blank slate for people, a second chance with the possibility of messing up again. No, when we put our trust in Christ, we are counted as righteous forever, as if we had lived the life Jesus did. And as we saw on Friday, we need have no uncertainty of God's acceptance for us in Christ, for he confirmed it to be fully satisfactory by rise, raising him from the dead. Because of the resurrection, restored relation with our creator, the one who eagerly desires to be known by us and proved so by coming to earth to die and rise again, can be guaranteed for anyone who would believe. But because we know that one day Christ will return, the countdown has begun. Every day that goes by is actually an act of God's mercy, who is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 8. The resurrection of Jesus should give our mission a sense of urgency and move our hearts deeply for the lost. We need to be like Paul, who had great sorrow and anguish in his heart for those he knew that did not believe. His heart's desire and prayer to God was that they may be saved. I pray that the resurrection so shapes our heart's desire and prayers as well. Okay, point 2b, true and eternal transformation. Despite the um, growing voice today that there is no need to change, it seems that so many of us still long for it. People want to be different to the way they are now. They want to be more productive, healthier, kinder, more confident, funnier, just better. And as Matt touched on in his talk, the rise in access to information has created an explosion of new content all about how to become your best self. How many of us see ads for supposed millionaires that will mentor you or videos with clickbait titles that will change your life? When you Google how to change, the autofill search results include how to change myself into a better person, how to change myself mentally and physically, and how to change myself to save my marriage. A lot of these are good desires, but sadly, the world's futile attempts to transform people never really works. We may see progress for a bit, but eventually we seem to revert back to the same old, same old. Or even if we are able to change one thing about ourselves, we become immediately aware of something else that could be changed. Perhaps a friend has recently mentioned their efforts or failures to make themselves a better person. 
This is a wonderful opportunity for us to share how the resurrection promises a true and better way to be transformed. It promises us a transformative view of thinking. Human level views of thinking about change often come into categories of effort, reward punishment or habit. If only I can put in enough energy and motivation, then I'll change. Or if only I'll get the right reward for when I do well and the right punishment for when I don't, then I'll change. Or even if I just do it regularly enough, I'm bound to change then, aren't I? As Matt helped us with yesterday, one of the ways the resurrection empowers us to change is with the new perspective it grants us. A perspective that is so much more glorious and profound than anything the world that can offer, that when we seek the things above, we see the realities of our new selves. We can count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, knowing that the old self was crucified with him and our new self has been raised with him. Think about the new thought life this offers us. When we think back on sins of the past, we know that we don't have to fall back into those anymore. That part of us is dead. When we look to Jesus and see his radiant qualities, which seem so beyond our own character, we know that we can become like him also, for we are alive in him. But as Matt said yesterday, it is not enough to just think like a Christian. To truly transform, we must become one. People need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them to change. In the, in the first half of this talk, we looked at Peter's spirit-emboldened sermon from Acts 2. In verse 38, he says this, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, in Peter's offer of the gospel, he holds out both forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. How often do we do that? Maybe too often we try to make the gospel as unsupernatural as possible in order to make it as palatable as possible. But why would anyone want that? How is that any different from all the other messages on offer in the world? True gospel transformation is radical and life-changing. We can tell others that our confidence in change is not found in our own efforts, but in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is God. Hear these amazing words once again from Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is what our friends and family desperately need, resurrection, life, and transformation. Okay, let's turn to our final point, sure hope for the future. Fear of the future is so prevalent in our society. Climate change, rising living costs, fuel crises, wartime, deadly pandemics. You would think I'm describing a decade of activity, but that's literally just the past year. It's easy to see why people are worried about the future outcome of all of these things and why they struggle to have peace. I know that when we gather for lunch in my workplace, people regularly share their concerns about everything going on in the world and their powerlessness to do anything about it. 
For the Christian, our hope and our future does not rest on the decisions of world leaders, human ingenuity, or our own circumstances. Our hope is based on the resurrection, and because the resurrection has happened, our hope is secure. As Matt helped us to see last night, for the Christian, hope isn't something we do, it's something we have. When our friends share their concerns for global politics or about the general decline of the world, we can tell them of a sure hope of a new creation where God will rule with peace and justice. In our sin, we have been bad stewards of God's earth, but because the new heavens and the new earth will be free from all evil, we have hope in a creation that will be eternally as good as God created it to be. No more corruption, no more war, no more pollution. In Hosea 2 verse 18, we read this. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. And if the people we know share their concerns for illness, aging, or even a fear of death, once again, we have good news. Christ's resurrection is a seal of our resurrection. One day we will have new bodies like him, free from weakness, pain, and disease. We know this because of Revelation 21, probably a familiar passage to many of us, but worth revisiting in this context. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I love what Sam Albury says on our new resurrected bodies. He says, the very best of human resources and technology now could not come close to achieving for my body what will happen when it is raised. This means that gray hairs are not a threat, but a promise. What a statement. In a culture that longs to avoid death and stay eternally youthful, we are reminded that rather than fear aging and the grave, we can actually embrace getting older and weaker, knowing death will be swallowed up in victory and we will be resurrected to a new creation to enjoy the love of our risen saviour for all eternity. So, as we go from here, let's go with confidence knowing Jesus is interceding for us as we go out and proclaim his message. Let's take confidence that the historical narrative can give our hearers great confidence too. And let's dwell on the wonders of resurrection assurance, transformation and hope, so that we can hold them out to a yearning world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the truths um, that are for us in your resurrection. And Lord, we so eagerly desire that um, the people that we know that don't know you um, would be able to experience them for themselves as well. But Lord, we are so aware of our, uh, our weakness and our fear 
it can be so hard to talk about these things which in our culture seem so out there. Lord, we pray that you would give us confidence and boldness to proclaim them truly, knowing that what we offer is something different, something new, something that can bring true transformation. And Lord, we pray that as you enlarge our hearts with who Christ is and what he's done for us, uh, we would go out in joy to tell people about him. And we pray that as we do that, you would move them to come to know your son, Jesus, also. Amen.